So I guess the first thing we do is say thank you for <clears throat> going really far out of your way to make my family and I feel at home. I, I compliment you for doing that yesterday, and uh, several kids have continued to help us with our little one, which is fantastic. I think my wife is hanging on by a, a thin uh, thread of sanity, but we're going to make it. Um, something uh, fun today for me, though, several times this morning I've, I've seen uh, things that remind me so much of home, I, I really do feel quite at home, mosquitoes. <laughs> I thought they all lived in Florida, and I, I can't figure out how any mosquito decided one day to fly 5,000 feet up into the air, up here where it's dry, uh, but I've seen uh, several already, and uh, you know, if you're from Florida, I mean, those are, those are the true natives uh, of our land. They're smaller here? You're welcome. You can keep them. All right. Well, we have a, a, a couple topics we're going to look at this morning that I'm uh, excited about. I hope you will uh, be excited as well. I'd ask you if you would to open up in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3. Oh, there they go. Look at the ladies leading the charge. I like it. Okay, so from 1 Timothy 3, beginning down at verse 14, let us hear the word of God together and then we will pray. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached, or pro proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And now let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for yet another beautiful day that you've granted to us to glorify and enjoy you. And uh, Lord, some of the faces around this room and outside this room are beginning to show the effects of uh, not a whole lot of sleep and an awful lot of fun. And we thank you, Lord, that we might have good times together in common. We thank you for the greatest of things that we have in common, uh, which is Christ, the Son of your love. Uh, we ask, O oh Lord, that this morning as we continue to reflect upon the theme of evangelism and how it relates to our church, even our own denomination, uh, we ask, Lord, that you give us faithfulness in fall things, small things, that we would prove ourselves worthy to be faithful in even greater things. Bless us, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Okay, so the, uh, the, the lessons this morning are uh, two sides of a coin. Uh, first, I want to talk about uh, a gentleman named J. Gresham Machen, and then in the second session, I'm going to talk about a fellow named Cornelius Van Til. Uh, these are, for OP folk, uh, fathers in the faith, heroes that uh, we esteem pretty highly. Uh, yesterday or yesterday evening, I talked about that hallway, that collage of faces and pictures that you might see in a home. Uh, well, if the home is the OPC, uh, certainly faces like Calvin and Machen and Van Til would be faces that we would come uh, to know and hopefully even love. Uh, what I'd like to do this morning is, is really persuade you 
uh, if I'm able, by God's grace, that evangelism is at the heart of what it means to be an Orthodox Presbyterian. That plain and simple uh, evangelism is at the heart of our identity. Uh, Yesterday we talked about John Calvin and the misrepresentations that exist about Calvin, uh, not only from those outside the faith that critique him, uh, but maybe even some ways in which Calvin has not been altogether represented well, uh, even by Calvinists. And so uh, on a similar theme today, what I'm going to do is suggest that when you think about the formation of our church and what people like Machen and Van Til stood for, uh, proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers was just part of the heart and soul of why we started this thing in the first place. And if that's true of why we began the denomination, uh, then it must be the reason why we continue uh, to do the things that we do together. So it needs to be at the front and center of the way that we think as a church. Uh, God's providence is always a neat thing to me. It it very often happens for me this way at church. I wonder if other pastors would say this too, or if I'm really just a strange charismatic on the inside. But a lot of times, without me designing it that way on purpose, the songs that will be sung in an occasion like this really seem to comport well with the theme of the message. Uh, So one of the songs that was just played as the kids were going out was, uh, what was it, Onward Christian Soldiers, okay? And then uh, the one before that had a line in it, I think, Soldiers of Christ Arise. Am I remember that carefully, uh, correctly? Uh, something along those lines. Uh, so uh, a, a title that you could give uh, this particular lesson is a question, and the question is this. Are we sold make, sword makers or soldiers? So if you're looking for a theme, a little tagline, uh, something to kind of remember and uh, wrestle with a little bit, are we sword makers or soldiers. Now, what's the difference between the two? Well, a sword maker is someone who could be very careful and studied in what they do. Uh, They can be precise. They could be competent. They could be effective. uh, They could even make fantastic swords, but it's, it's quite possible, at least, that a sword maker might never see what? Battle, right, you got it. Whereas a soldier sees battle. He employs the tools of the sword maker. But he actually goes in to battle. And I'll just tell you, you know, frankly for me, what, what do I really hope will be like the upshot of this conference for you? Is that on the other side of this, uh, you'll be jealous to be in the battle. You'll have a real sense that this is your part in the kingdom of God and the unfolding of God's kingdom promises and this beautiful drama of redemption that's unfolding on the world stage that that you too have a part. And even uh, those little uh, kind of, you know, hazy-eyed boogers that just left here a little while ago, uh, they too have a part. And we need to be equipping them for their part, but we also need to be faithfully engaging our part, modeling, teaching, striving, and serving together. So I'm hopefully going to inspire you along those lines by talking about uh, this fellow named J. Gresham Machen. Now, I, I began uh, my first uh, lesson a couple nights ago. I, I'm, like, time is becoming this blurry thing for me, right? Same thing for you? Like, what day is it? I mean, who knows? Does it even matter? It's, it's just mid-camp. That's, that's all, it ma- all it matters. Uh, so I, I talked about how uh, Machen, in an early sermon as a student, suggested that evangelism was the most important thing that the church did. 
And, and Voss corrected him, rightly, worship really is the most important thing that we do, right? And evangelism is a means of gathering worshiper practice. One thing to just say it, yeah, evangelism is real important. You can say it all day long. But in reality, where does it happen? Where is the battlefield? When does the sword come off the shelf over the fireplace and see action? Well, when you replay the tape of the formation of our denomination, I, th- I think you can actually see there is a lot of action. There was a battlefield. Uh, people literally lived and died for the truths that you and I are now able to inherit and to benefit from. Uh, Machen, uh, as you know, of course, was very uh, early in the formation of our church. Uh, he was, in a certain sense, one of our first martyrs for the church. Not that he was put to death for the faith, but that he suffered greatly for it. Uh, at a time when liberalism and a very muddy, if not false, gospel were rising to the surface and those things were being taught in the place of a true gospel, uh, he stood up and said, no, we can't do this. He opposed it. He drew a sword, if you will, and drew a line in the sand with it. Uh, I want to quote some things uh, from him along the way. Uh, He says here this, The church of Christ is here described in exalted terms, but is not regarded here or elsewhere in the New Testament as an end in itself, but on the contrary, as the agency for the propagation of the gospel. So what is the church? It's a great question. What is the church? Well, the church exists as an agent for promoting the gospel, for proclaiming the gospel to the end of the age. That's, that's why we're here. We, we are time-bound. While it is still called now, today, right? While we're on this side of the close of history, the church exists in the world to promote uh, the gospel. And Machen believed that the gospel was at stake. That if you have a muddy gospel, you potentially might have no gospel at all. Uh, every church should go through the book uh, Christianity and Liberalism. It's just a fantastic book. We did it uh, as a Sunday school class, and I'll tell you something that was kind of neat too. You know, our church, uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about it on the last day. That sounds very eschatological. I mean by that, I think Thursday. Um, I'd be happy for the end of the age to come on Friday, but it's not exactly what I meant. So, uh, what was I talking about? So, in our church, most of our folks, what's unusual about Covenant is that most of our folks don't come from Reformed backgrounds. I have seven elders, four deacons, an associate pastor. Uh, not a single one of them had ever been, except for my associate pastor, had ever even been a member in the OPC, let alone an officer in one. And a lot of the people in our church, this is all new to them. And you should have seen the buzz around the room. When we did Christianity and liberalism, folks were like, okay, I get it. This is what it means to be OPC. There's a Christianity that's falsely called so, and there's the real thing. Uh, there's the gospel of self-help or simply the better life gospel. And, and then there's the real thing. There's playing church and then there's being the church. And Christianity and liberalism uh, was just a fantastic study for new Christians, new converts in our church, people new to the Reformed faith. And one of the things that's so new about it or fantastic about it is in it, uh, Machen really makes this plea to make the truth clear. Now, I want to make my point here clear. He wasn't simply interested in refining every theological idea with absolute precision. 
He was concerned for orthodoxy. And I've got a couple quotes here that are beautiful. But he was particularly concerned to make the gospel clear to unbelievers. If there's one thing that drove him nuts, if you can say it like that, it was the idea that there were people out there in the name of foreign missions that were just basically saying, be a good person. God loves everyone, irrespective of what they believe. Famous uh, people that he would spar with. Uh, one a writer, I usually get like a smirk or two when I mention this name, uh, Pearl Buck. Uh, many of you have read things of Pearl Buck. If you're a little bit older, you're probably familiar with her. Fantastic writer, wonderful uh, novelist. In many respects, uh, a fantastic humanitarian. And she and Machen were just foes. Uh, they, had a, they had a tense relationship. And the reason why is when Buck went to the Orient uh, overseas on the mission field, uh, she became persuaded. She changed her views and decided basically that, you know, really we don't need to keep focusing on the gospel. Uh, we have just as much to learn from them about God as they do from us. And Machen went berserk. He said, no, 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 no. Wait, wait, hold, time out. Wait, if we stop preaching the gospel, it's not missions anymore. No gospel, no missions. We, we're just being good, uh, you know, philanthropists, humanitarian. We're just nice people. We're the Peace Corps. But we're not the body of Christ anymore if you stop proclaiming the gospel. And uh, there's a fantastic little thing. When Machen died, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, uh, but when Machen died, Pearl Buck wrote a really beautiful little piece that was printed in a magazine, and she said in it, Dr. Voss and I disagreed on many things. But there's one thing I'll say about Dr. Machen, and that is he stood for what he believed with unwavering resolve, and for that I respect him. That's fantastic, isn't it? That, that someone who considered you a foe would say, nevertheless, I respected you. I admired your resolve. You stood for what you believed and you suffered for it. That's what I think we should want people to say about us. Individually. All of us. Our churches. Our denomination. That we stand for what we believe. Unwavering. Unwilling to compromise. It doesn't mean fighting about everything pointlessly. But it does mean, particularly regarding the gospel, that we stand for it and that we're known as those. We're, we're the church that stands for the gospel, and not just in a theological sense, in a very practical sense. Machen cared, I think, uh, quite strongly about what was going on on the field itself, where the gospel uh, ought to be proclaimed. He was also greatly concerned for the dynamics at play uh, there at Princeton Seminary when it began to turn liberal and, and loosey-goosey. Is, is that a good term? Uh, he also began to dig in and push back and say, no, we can't do this. So here you have this guy with a PhD who on the one hand in the seminary is writing and defending the truth and orthodoxy and saying, guys, we can't compromise. And he stood for it there. But he was very much also a practical figure who cared about what was going on in the mission field, who cared about the work of foreign missions, who would lay down his life quite literally trying to strengthen and encourage churches to be faithful in their gospel ministry. He even organized an independent board of missions, which you have to find that a bit ironic, right? Uh, kind of the founder of the OPC forms an independent board of foreign missions. Do you see the problem with that? He was desperate. Desperate to see the gospel continue to go out. And yet, uh, he stood for what he believed. 
He was eventually tried and suspended uh, for not being willing to fund liberal missionaries. I wonder how many pastors would be willing to suffer like that. Would I? He saw the threat. This is a great uh, concern. He saw the threat to the Gospels, not merely the unbelief outside the church, but compromise and unbelief inside the church. Now, what, I, what I'm going to set up is something I want to come back to. Uh, this will probably be one of the more uh, confrontational things I say. Machen played a lot off of screw tape letters. So did Van Til. Uh, there was an interesting little uh, reflection uh, on some of that material. And Machen said, you know, the, the, the unbeliever outside, the hostility of the world is a great threat. But there are two other threats that are equally concerning. Maybe even more. One is unbelief within the church. In other words, that we just kind of go soft on our theology and our convictions, that we compromise for the sake of social acceptance. Uh, I think one you could add here that he likely anticipated that you see in screw tape letters, and Van Til will talk about this even more, is atrophy. If there's something I'm actually concerned about, like if you want to really get me going a little bit, see a vein pop or two, uh, it's that uh, we will become just sort of atrophied and indifferent to the idea of evangelism. That we'll go into a cruising mode and say, you know what, the world's going to, to hell in a handbasket, just get out of the way. Just let it, let it do its thing. Who really cares all that much? And I'd like to suggest, as much as that might be a temptation for us to think and feel now, how much more so back in Machen's day would have been convenient for him to just say, you know what, let them do what they're going to do. Why get all chewed up and caught in the middle of this? Why not just bow out of the fight? Stay at home and make swords. Let someone else get on the battlefield. It's dangerous out there. People die on battlefields. Machen said no. Uh, we've got to go out there. The real attack, he said in a little sermon on Matthew 5.13 called Salt and Light, the real attack is not by fire and swords, threats of bonds of death, but friendly words attack from within. Not only is the church salt, but God Himself preserved the salt. No frontal assault, but the deadlier poison of merging the church gradually and peacefully with the life of the world. Now that can happen a couple different ways. Uh, sometimes we think that it's by like, you know, merging our ideas, right? <clears throat> Take a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of worldliness, throw it into the blender, and everybody drinks and we're all friends. Okay? But I think one of the ways that the world actually wants to seduce us, uh, if I can use a provocative way of putting it, is by lulling us to sleep first. For the church to just kind of not be so concerned about the unbeliever next door. Because after all, if you, get, if you get concerned, you might actually do something. Okay? And I think Machen saw that coming. Like Calvin, Machen found his encouragement in the promises of God that God would continue to build his church to the very end of the age. Uh, he was also, uh, I, I think, sometimes I, you, know, you try to imagine what people you never met might have sounded like and <clears throat> like what would get to him or whatever. Well, Machen, every once in a while, could be like me. Uh, he could get a little bit grumpy and irritated by nonsense. And so he, uh, he describes in his book uh, a sign that he sees. You'd think this was like last week. Uh, this is a sign on a church, uh, out in front of a church by a road. Not a member? Come in and help make this a better community. Like that? 
Not a member yet? Just come on in. We'll just make this place better. What's the difference between that and any other thing in the world, right? Everybody's trying to make the world a better place. You can find that song on, on every radio station. But that's not the church's goal. Church's goal isn't try to make the world a better place. It's ultimately, I know it's debatable, you know what I mean. The church's goal is the gospel. If you're going to try to make the world a better place, it has to be through the gospel. can't be apart from the gospel. That's liberalism. But through the gospel, we change lives, and that's what makes the world a better place. I want to read a quote to you, and I brought my glasses just in case. This is going to be one of those test moments. We'll see if I can actually see it. Why are you laughing? I didn't tell a joke feeling kind of vulnerable up here. Just kidding. <clears throat> so this is Machen in his little uh, book, uh, God Transcendent. Uh, by the way, before I do this, let me mention, I've, I'm going to be quoting from uh, Machen's sermons here, Van Til's sermons. Uh, I've done a good bit of reading in Calvin's sermons and others. And I, I would just put out a little plug here. Uh, if you really want to get to know a theologian, don't read his theological books. Read his sermons. Read what he says on Sunday morning when he's looking in uh, to the eyes of people, young and old, right? Uh, those who are new into the world and those who are not long for the world to come. Read, read Machen's sermons if you really want to see uh, his heart. Read, read Van Til's sermons. Van Til for me is a very difficult guy to read at times. Read his sermons, and you're like, wait a minute, this guy was really down to earth. He's like a grandpa talking to his son about whittling. Read, read, read their sermons, and I think you see a side of them uh, that's, that's really helpful and clear. Machen, Machen said this, What are you going to do, my brothers, in this great time of crisis? What a time it is, to be sure. What a time of glorious opportunity. Will you stand with the world? Will you shrink from controversy? Will you witness for Christ only where witnessing costs you nothing? That stings, doesn't it? Will you pass through these stirring days without coming to any real decision? Or will you learn the lesson of Christian history? Will you penetrate by your study and your meditation beneath the surface? Will you recognize in that which prides itself on being modern, an enemy that is as old as the hills. Will you hope and pray, not for a mere continuance of what now is, but for a rediscovery of the gospel that can make all things new? Will you have resources, excuse me, recourse to the charter of Christian liberty in the Word of God? God grant that some of you may do that. God grant that some of you, even though you be not now decided, may come to say as you go forth into the world, it is hard in these days to be a Christian. The adversaries are strong. I am weak. But thy word is true and thy spirit will be with me. Here I am, Lord. Send me. I, mean, I just I want to go out and do push-ups or something. Like I barely stand to be here. Does that motivate you? What will you do in these stirring days? Will you resolve yourself to anything at all? Or will you hope that things will just kind of coast as they are and that you might remain safely hidden within the walls of your self-imposed isolation? Or will you come to a decision 
that there's a grand opportunity before the church. And what we need now is not to perpetuate the status quo, but rather learn the lesson of history uh, that there is a great gospel that can and must continue to make all things new or the church has truly lost her identity in this world. The salt will have lost its saltiness. And I love this bottom line. I would love to really get into the hearts of some, uh, everyone here, but I'd love to get into the hearts of some of our, our young people. Uh, when you hear this language, it is, a, it is hard in these days to be a Christian. Wouldn't you agree with me? It's hard, right? The world doesn't make it easy. It's tough to be a Christian. I think it's really tough to be a Christian young person, even if you're in a great family and you've got a great church, all those good things. It's still hard. I get it. I don't think it's easy. It is hard these days to be a Christian. The adversaries are strong. I am weak. But your word is true and your spirit will be with me. Now here's the line. Here I am, send me. What do you think of yourselves as? It's idle watchers here just kind of listening to this guy talk and I guess he's maybe talking to your parents or something like that. No, I'm talking to you. This is before you. And the question is, Will you stand up like soldiers and say, here I am, Lord, send me. I'm ready to play my part, whatever that might be. <clears throat> Machen's final sermon, you know, he died, in my mind, well, it's just kind of an interesting thing. A few months ago, I was, I was doing a short conference for the Canadian Reform folks in Winnipeg, Canada. Uh, when they first invited me to speak there, I looked on a map at Winnipeg, Canada, and I said yes, I have to admit, for largely selfish reasons. One, they told me I could take my daughter with me. You know the one that's that one. Uh, and we just decided we'd make a daddy-daughter vacation trip out of it. But I also had to see people actually lived in Winnipeg, Canada. Because Winnipeg, Canada is three hours straight north of Fargo. And no one, nothing, not, there should be no life north of Fargo. That, that's why they made the show, right? Like Fargo is the end of the world. And to live three hours past the end of the world, it made no sense to me. And I, I remember we went in, uh, in February uh, of this year, and they were like, you want to come in February? And I could just sense this dramatically long pause on the other end of the email. February? Did you mean like June? Because in February, I mean, you know, we can't walk 10 feet without a snowblower. And so, no, February, and I was, but we live in Florida, right? You know, the, that white sand that they have up north, <laughs> snow, I think they call it, when the, when the beach turns white, that beautiful dynamic, we wanted to see that. So anyway, flying over this in the middle of winter to talk about evangelism and try to encourage a few churches, and I was reading over my notes in this quote from Machen, and it just reminded me of the fact that, you know, he dies, right, in the middle of winter, uh, on the frozen plains of the mid Midwest, doing pretty much this, trying to encourage churches in the middle of nowhere, in the Midwest, about as far north as you can go and still be in the United States, to stand for the gospel. Churches that were losing their buildings, churches uh, that were losing members that just wanted to go along with the go-alongs. And Machen would say, no, we have to stand for this. And in his, uh, his final sermons, in this period of his life, not that he knew that he was going to die, uh, but he was dealing with different theories of the cross, which he found to be erroneous. I, I really get the sense that the man was sold out for the gospel. Like if he was writing, it was defending the gospel. If he was preaching, it was encouraging uh, the churches. Everything about him just oozed. His 
money, everything, uh, just went uh, towards the gospel itself. And he said wonderful things as he uh, was laying there, even sick, and as many of you know about to die, had this beautiful quote, uh, the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. What will you say on your deathbed? And why, why would you wait till then to say it? Said to another friend from a distance, uh, isn't the reformed faith grand? I really believe that. You know what? I'm still, I still feel like a newbie to this reformed stuff. I really do. A handful of years into it, a couple degrees, blah, blah, blah. I still feel like I'm really falling in love and, and really that, like falling in love with this Reformed faith and the gospel that comes uh, right at the heart of it. Uh, when Machen was a young man over in the war, he, he served in World War I. Uh, he was with the YMCA. He didn't actually serve in active duty, but he was over there with the YMCA, and he did a lot of like lay ministry uh, at that time. Uh, he said once in 1918, I talked a long time to a fellow, in particular this evening, who had been going through agony of his soul and his effort to find peace with God in the midst of the war. It made me think of Pilgrim's Progress. Well, I never before knew what the preaching of the gospel is. And it was apparently a successful meeting, a meeting, Machen said of it. In fact, there was very little of myself in it. But he said this. I love this line. I want to know if you believe this. But the grace of God still finds an answer in the human heart. The grace of God still finds an answer in the human heart. Uh, people may be numb, callous, following every manner of intellectual confusion, moral hedonism, stupidity, all of that, but that doesn't mean God can't break down those walls. In fact, He's doing it all the time. Because the grace of God still finds an answer in the human heart. Jesus is still a good physician, and He doesn't simply operate on those that want to be healed. Uh, he snatches us. And He heals us. That's how we come. In fact, we're dead until He begins to operate. Machen noted in that context, people would say things like, all good soldiers go to heaven. In the South where I live, people believe that if, they're, you know, if they vote Republican and drink sweet tea, they're apparently headed to heaven as well. <clears throat> it is kind of a joke, but it's sort of sad uh, because I actually feel like I'm the world's worst evangelist because I spend so much time trying to convince people that they're not saved. Because in the South, everybody thinks that they are. They walked an altar once, they prayed a prayer, they, they did a, you know, some sort of a evangelical gymnastic once, and now they think they're good. And I, I'm just, no, no. If you're united to Christ for your justification, you're united to Him for your sanctification, you get the whole Christ or no Christ. Machen had the very same dynamic in his day. He says this of every person now, in case you think that either he or I are, are just sort of directing this uh, to ordain people. Not at all. Machen said this, the proclamation of the gospel is the clear joy. Now listen to me. The proclamation of the gospel is the clear joy of every Christian man. But how shall the gospel be propagated? And I love this. This is just fantastic. I want you to allow yourself just to be like real honest for a moment and say, okay, this guy's been talking about evangelism for a couple days. Sometimes I felt a little encouraged. Sometimes I probably felt discouraged. Sometimes I think we're doing good things. Sometimes I don't think we're doing anything. Sometimes I feel like we're seeing some fruit. Sometimes I wonder, are there any trees around? And Machen said this, with what lively hope 
does our gaze turn now to the future. At last, true evangelism can go forward without the shackle of compromising associations. The fields are white to the harvest. The evangelists are ready to be sent. Who will give the funds needed to send them Send them out with their message of peace? Who will be the men and women who will go? I, no, I love it. Because Machen's saying now in the 1930s, this is a fantastic time. And by the way, he's writing in the context of world wars, compromising seminaries, missionaries that were famous going belly up on the gospel, the church itself caving in to liberalism and indifference, Machen's own friends abandoning him, right? Uh, I mean, if you want to have a reason to be just like a, a, a real pessimist, I think he had it. Those are dark times. Those are harder times than we have now. And in the hardest of times, it's in that context that Machen says, what lively hope do we now have? So this is where I'd like to make the turn to say, you know what, if you think there are things around you that are sobering, almost discouraging, be real honest about that. Admit, the hour appears dark. The hill seems steep. The enemies seem too many. Our resources seem too few. What a great time to say we might just need God. <laughs> Maybe our success isn't dependent upon our success, but upon God Himself. I think what Machen saw was God's doing something very beautiful. Uh, it's, it's so often the case, isn't it, in the life of the Christian, in the life of the church, that God creates these many little death and resurrection stages where all of a sudden, in the midst of absolute darkness, brokenness, death, uncertainty, there God infuses hope and creates something beautiful and new. Something gorgeous that only he himself can actually do. And so if Machen could say, in those dark times, sandwiched between world wars, what lively hope stands before the church, can't we say the same? And by the way, if you were to ask him, this is my way of attempting to, why the OPC? Why the OPC? Why did, why did they need that denomination then? Why do we need this denomination now? Here's my answer. It's actually Machen's. At last, true evangelism can go forward without the shackle of compromising associations. The harvest is white. The fields are white for the harvest. Why the OPC, in my view? Because this is a fantastic time for a clear gospel and a faithful church to unsheathe the sword and head to the field. The battlefield is the harvest field. And the harvest field is a battlefield. But are we going to be sword makers or soldiers? It's comfortable to make soldiers, excuse me, swords. Right? it's safe. You can even talk about the art of war all day long. But to be a soldier, friends, kids, that's a whole other game. So when he asked the question, who will give the needed funds to send the missionaries, to plant the churches, to train, 
This is where all of you are supposed to say real enthusiastically, here I am, Lord, send me. My son, we're doing a, a capital campaign in our church for planning churches and um, renovating our back building. And, uh, and, and my son, who's not here, probably okay, doesn't need to hear all this stuff, um, takes out a piece of paper. We have these little like, covenant pieces of paper for people to take notes on or whatever. And uh, he makes a fake check for $235,000, <laughs> puts it in the offering plate. One of the deacons comes up to me after the end of the service when they're done counting or whatever. He's like, Carl put this in the offering plate for our uh, church planning and new building. Isn't that great? They said, oh, by the way, we're going to hold them to it. (laughs) So he knows. He's like actually asked me, Dad, I got to get a job. The deacon said I have to pay that. How, How will he pay that debt? Right? How will you, you know, maybe that's not the best way to put it, but we love the church, right? We love these things we're talking about. Maybe you're not going to go to the mission field, uh, but you can get behind and push. Maybe you're not going to go be a church planner, but you can get behind and push. Uh, Maybe you're not going to make a whole lot of money. You can go to the mission field. (laughs) In fact, if you are okay with not making a lot of money, you can go to the mission field or be a pastor. They kind of go hand in hand, and uh, there's, there's plenty of room on those fields. Plenty of room for new churches, plenty of room uh, for new missionaries, and this is why we are here. Now, I want to read one, uh, one last thing uh, from Machen, and then I'll, with a couple comments, uh, close. And by the way, when preachers say one last thing, what they really mean is like five, six, seven things. Our church has, to- has totally learned not to get excited. Even when I say like, now in conclusion, they're like, yeah. Uh, it's going to be at least 15 more minutes. And I tell visitors all the time, uh, don't, if you came here hoping you were going to beat the Baptist to Denny's, it's not going to happen. <laughs> you will be last in the line at Denny's. So just prepare to talk about the sermon or wherever you need to. But um, anyway. So Machen, in a sermon, get my correct page number here. This is so embarrassing. All right. God wants me a lot more humble than I am. I think this is a good note to close on, at least in terms of quoting from Machen himself. I want you to think again about where the church is now, not just where it was in Machen's day, where we are right here, right now, this stage, this point in history, the very real struggles before us in the sense of the struggles that are outside the church, the things that we face in our opposition, uh, but also the struggles that we realistically have and admittedly have inside the church. They had both. Okay, so let's be honest. And then hear this from Machen. What a wonderful open door God has placed before the church of today. A pagan world, weary and sick, often distrusting its own modern gods. A saving gospel strangely entrusted to us unworthy messengers. A divine book with unused resources of glory and power. Ah, what a marvelous opportunity, my brethren. What a privilege to proclaim not some partial system of truth, but the full glorious system which God has revealed in His Word and which is summarized in the wonderful standards of our faith. I believe that wholeheartedly. What a privilege to get those hallowed instruments in which that truth is summarized down from the shelf. Sounds like a sword 
that has not been unsheathed in a while. To get those marvelous instruments down from the shelf and write them in patient instruction by the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon the tablets of children's hearts. What a privilege to present our historic standards in all their fullness in the pulpit and at the teacher's desk and in the Christian home. What a privilege to do that for one reason that those stand that those excuse me let me start over what a privilege to do that for the one reason that those standards present not a man-made creed but what God has told us in his holy word what a privilege to proclaim that same system of divine truth to the unsaved what a privilege to carry the message of the cross unshackled by compromising associations to all the world what a privilege to send it to foreign lands. What a privilege to proclaim it to the souls of people who sit in nominally Christian churches and starve for lack of the bread of life. Oh yes, what a privilege and what a joy, my brethren. Shall we lose that joy for any selfishness or jealousy? Shall we lose it for any of the sins into which every one of us, without exception, is prone to fall? Now, if there was one word that he repeated there over and over, what would the one word be? Privilege. What I fear in a week of discussions like this is I will talk to, to you about evangelism to the point that you'll feel kind of, I, I use a phrase, I don't like it, guilt-driven evangelism. Right? You sorry bunch of sinners, go out there and say something to somebody. Right? Uh, shouldn't you feel guilty that you're not out there telling people about Jesus? I've not gone that route. At least I'm trying not to. I, I don't think Machen was driven by guilt. In fact, I don't think guilt drives anyone to genuinely obey from the heart. But Thanksgiving does. And for us, what ought to drive us out of our comfort zones and into genuine Christian obedience regarding this subject of evangelism is the privilege and joy it is to know Christ, to know Him as our Savior, and to know that we're on the winning side. And that's why Machen can say what a wonderful door God has placed before the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. I really believe that. The door is actually quite open. The field is quite ripe. We've got metaphors for this all day long. The battle belongs to the Lord. All things are in place. All the tools have been given to us. Uh, when I talk to other pastors from other denominations, uh, I feel like I'm 20 feet tall and they just shrink when I tell them what our ordination standards are. You went to seminary and then after that they did what to you? They gave you this exam? And in Greek and Hebrew and, you know, 14 nouns later, they're like, right? We have all the tools. We have the best tools. Part of the reason why I'm here. I wanted the best tools. We have the best tools. We have, say like this, we have the best swords. They're sturdy. They're resilient. They're sharp. They work well when used. When used. So, in conclusion, yesterday I asked the question, where are Calvin's heirs to what it means to be Reformed and Calvinistic? And now I'm asking, where are Machen's heirs? Machen 
was actually a sword maker. And Machen was also a soldier. So where are his heirs? Those who will stand on that field and say, you know what? This is a joy. This is a privilege. What's the worst the world can do to you? Right? This is a joy. We know who's got this. I like also that he ends on this note uh, that we ought not to shrink back. Shall we lose that joy for any selfishness or jealousy? I have to search my heart. At times, as a pastor, I'm jealous of other pastors who seem to be, they, they preach better or their churches are larger or they, they do things better. All, isn't that stupid? Right? But I know there's no other pastors here who admit that, so I'll just kind of stay here by myself. I'm not looking at the rest of you. But he also says, shall we lose our joy for any of the sins into which every one of us, without exception, is prone to fall. A great follow-up to this week would be to read Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Van Til is actually going to quote uh, in my next uh, lesson uh, from Screwtape Letters a couple of times. But one of the things that the devil would love to say to you, if I can put it like that, is look at you, what a sorry sinner you are. How are you going to tell somebody about Jesus? Right? You don't have your act all together. You don't have your family all together. You know the struggles and dumb things. You know the things you've said this week. If other people heard you, you would be ashamed. But don't let the lies of the devil, which are based, by the way, often on truths. We are miserable, wretched, broken sinners that need a Savior. And if we can't admit that as Christians, how can you ever expect non-Christians, right? Uh, but the fact that you have a Savior who loves you in spite of you is the greatest joy and privilege that no one can take away from you. And that joy, beloved, is what frees us to go out and to talk to others about the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the one to whom this battle belongs. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you as we continue to stroll down this hallway of the heroes of the faith, uh, those who have faithfully served even in our tradition, uh, from Calvin now to Machen. We're beginning to see a pattern of imperfect men, yet men who recognized in their imperfections that they had an, a very perfect Savior, one who was full of love and of grace and also of truth. And that to stand for truth is a great privilege in this world where so many are lost and blinded and stumbling to their own destruction. And I do ask, Lord, uh, that you'd help us now not to be cultivating a sense of guilt-driven evangelism, but really uh, joy, love, and thanksgiving-inspired evangelism. Help us to still love the Savior and be overwhelmed by His unfailing love that to talk about Him is simply to speak of the one who loves us best, and the one whom we love most. And Lord, we know, even as those lines flow from my lips, that we love Christ very imperfectly. And so we pray that you would increase our love for you and for your church. Uh, we pray that whether we are a pastor, an elder, a deacon, 
a member, a child in the church uh, who uh, is still finding their own place. Lord, wherever we are, we pray that you cultivate in our hearts a genuine love for the things of God. And I pray particularly, Lord, for the young people here, uh, teenagers, uh, who are listening to me speak and wrestling with their sense of identity, not only in the church, but with their life and the plans that they will make. And Lord, if it might be your good pleasure to lay upon their hearts a desire to serve you as missionaries or pastors or wherever you'd plan us, oh Lord, give us great boldness and joy for the things of your kingdom. Might it even be the case that in years to come we would look back and see how you were pleased to grip our hearts during this week and how we've been serving you since then. Lord, we love you. Thank you for first loving us through Christ our Savior. Amen. Anyway. So, uh, 15 minutes for uh, questions, um, uh, reckless accusations of heresy. I, I guess I'll entertain them all. Any, uh, any questions? Somebody actually asked me, where is the Homer Simpson of evangelism? All right, yep, you're on. Why don't you stand up and uh, say your question rather loudly if you can. Do we need another microphone in order to do this right? blue one I love you. <clears throat> so, first of all, I, I meant what I said. I, I just, you know, genuine and sincere humility is hard to come by. And that somebody could so easily admit that he's a curmudgeon. And uh, it gave me a couple stories last night of, of little ways he felt like, okay, I tried and I really did the wrong thing. Um, and then the nickname, the Homer Simpson of evangelism. I'm, I'm quoting that everywhere I go from here on out. I mean, that's, that's just fantastic. And I, I get that. You know, I'm, I'm very often brilliant 20 minutes after the conversation is over. I come up with that beautifully, you know, thi that thing that, you know, I should have said that or something really snarky I could have used. Um, I, one of my favorite words in the English language is snarky. It's just a great word. Uh, and so I... A couple thoughts, one individually and then one a bit more broadly. I, I think we have to be okay with failure. And I'm going to say later the opposite. I think we should not be okay with failure. I think we should not be okay with failure if failure means we're not even trying. My two-year-old who, you know, I've talked about a lot. And I, I do that a lot, but I love my kids. So he's stumbling up and down, you know, the steps here. He's just learned to walk, and it's a, it's a very fresh impression for me uh, when he literally was first starting to walk. And, and, and what do you have to do over and over and over before you finally stay on your feet? You've got to fall down. 
But there's something beautiful about that, right? A little kid trying to walk, that, that's, there's something very, like, they're, they're, he's resolved. Like, he's going to do it. He falls down, he bounces back up, and falls down, he bounces back up. And, I mean, like a hundred times a day, right, he just falls down and bounces back up. And then one day, he doesn't fall. You know what I mean? And he just, now he's a toddler. He's, he's walking. And I, I, think that, I think that real failure, I, it's, this, this sounds like, dentist chair counseling you know those things you're laying up there and kitten counseling right there's little you know he who never tries always succeeds at nothing or whatever that wasn't a really good one but you know my point there's little cliches you see with with kittens and flowers and whatever in the dentist chair i guess it's supposed to make the pain less um i i think that we fail when we don't try and i'll i'll, I'll quote a uh, I think it was Hudson Taylor, I might be wrong, but I think he's the guy who said, I like what I'm doing wrong better than what you're not doing perfectly. Did I get that right? It's, it's, got, it's pretty close. So I, I think a willingness to fail is where you have to begin. And that's true of everything. I was a fitness trainer for years. Uh, if people want to come in and get in shape or whatever, you can't come in and just try to do the hardest thing in the gym, right? You've got to start somewhere. You've got to start small or you're going to do bad things to yourself. Um, anything that you want to do, you, you've got to begin somewhere and you've got to be willing uh, to make mistakes but to push through them. And so you'll make a handful of mistakes, but you'll learn a lesson. You know, you told me the story last night of a uh, uh, you know, a, a new Christian or a non-Christian maybe came to dinner or something and you asked them to pray. You might not do that the next time. Um, but, you know, I've done things like that so many times. And, and I think you have to not only be willing to persevere, I think you, being able to laugh at yourself is a good thing. The fact that you can call yourself the Homer Simpson of evangelism, that gives me a little bit of hope. Uh, so, you know, just a willingness to try is, is a great place to start. And one of the unique things about you is that only you are you. I think this is the kind of the beauty and breadth of the body of Christ is that everybody's a little bit different. Like, you don't need to try to be me. I don't want you to try to be me. I want you to just be you. But there are places where you go that only you will get to. There are people that you know that I will never get to. There are conversations that you can have that I will never get to have. And that's true of everybody around the room. And so in those little places where God puts you, I think those where, you know, we don't have to have like these forced or canned uh, approaches at evangelism. I think at the end of the day, a big part of it is just loving people to the point of willing to expose yourself to a little bit of awkwardness. Sir. Yeah.
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was just getting ready to the same thing. And, and I'll say, you know, on, following on that, two thoughts. One is Covenant Kids, you've got a wonderful story to tell. Like, and actually, I'll save some of that uh, for, for our last, well, one of our later sessions. But you really have a fantastic story to tell that is startling for many people. And people love to be startled. You go to the movie theater not expecting to see something you've seen before, right? It's got to be new. You've got the newest story in the world, like, you know, families and church and devotions lots of things that you're able to do are startling to the world to be able to talk about that so the other comment i want to make to our, our brother who i will affectionately remember as nothing other than homer simpson the evangelist uh for the rest of my life um i i think something that we can do together this is what i meant by moving from individual to more broadly i think this is a subject that the church needs to talk about more um we actually build an evangelism class that's nuanced in different ways into our church's educational ministry. We kind of have a sort of thinking like, you know, four-year mega plan uh, in broad stroke as you think about like, you know, your covenant kids are going to move through things. Every four years you have sort of a curriculum change, if I can put it like that. And to plug something like evangelism in, you know, there are great books out there. Uh, and I, I think it'd be fantastic in like in a Sunday school class setting uh, to read through some of the books out there. Most of the books out there on evangelism have not been written by Orthodox Presbyterians. That was funny. Nobody laughed at that. That was my best joke the whole week, right? So, so the fact that there has not been a, a really great book written on evangelism by an Orthodox Presbyterian, and there's stuff related to it, but you know what I mean, means that we're going to have to spit out some bones uh, with some of the books that are out there. Like, there's no book I could recommend and say, that's it, right? But there are a number of them, I would say, definitely read that. And, you know, we're discerning readers. And so we can talk about things. We can spit out some bones. Uh, one of my favorites is actually a book called Get Real by a guy named John Leonard, uh, who doesn't argue for a programmed approach to evangelism. He argues the opposite, just kind of being yourself, just a real version of you. So if I were you and I were, let me be you for a minute, okay? This would be awkward. So, you know, you sit down on a plane, and, and the lady beside you is looking at her phone, she's crying, something's going on, uh, and you're aware of the fact, okay, this is probably an opportunity, but I'm, I'm likely going to blow this. I feel that way all the time. I mean, I literally, I, I feel like a baboon sometimes trying to talk to people. It's really embarrassing. I, I can actually imagine saying, you know what, I can sense that you're hurting. Do you want to talk about it? Is there something I can help you with? And then if you feel right, maybe you wouldn't say this, whatever. Maybe this is not helpful at all, but I'm still going to keep talking. Um, maybe I would say, I'm a pretty awkward person. I don't usually talk to people, but I can sense that you're hurting, and I'd love to tell you about the one that I talk to. When I'm hurting, his name is Jesus. And she'll give you an immediate green light or red light and take the hint. If, if the light is red, don't sit there and be a jerk and, and try to force your four spiritual laws and somebody that's crying doesn't want to talk to you. You can quote me on that. Don't be a jerk. It's bad for evangelism. <laughs> but, I mean, I've, I've actually had this scenario. I got on a plane coming back from somewhere once. I sat down beside a lady in military uh, clothes who was coming back from someplace, and she was deeply distressed, and she'd kind of lost her soul uh, while serving overseas. That was pretty close to language that she used. 
And after sitting there praying and also sensing, okay, and if I start this and it doesn't go well, we're kind of trapped here and it's a long flight. If it does go well, I'm going to have to talk to her for two hours and I really wanted to sleep. You know, I'm, you know, I'm horribly selfish. And so, you know, finally at one point I'm like, are you okay? You don't seem like you're okay. And she started talking, telling me a little bit more, and it was green light, green light, green light. And when I got the plane, she, I mean, she gave me a hug. And she left. So sometimes you get opportunities like that. Sometimes you get red light. Sometimes you say something so stupid you just want to shrink into a shell and never see another person. And that's why I say, you know what? Uh, God smiles upon our frailties and covers them with grace. And maybe the thing that we need to do is show ourselves enough grace that we can give ourselves permission to be vulnerable. You know, maybe, maybe we'll fail a handful of times, but you'll get better at it. And in a setting, you know, in a church setting where people are talking like this, like you've been open, but you get a Sunday school class, and for a handful of weeks, people work through some stuff together. Uh, my guess is there are probably a lot more people like you in the room that are going to say it, right? And that you'll actually find some camaraderie. In fact, you know what? We're a bunch of curmudgeons. <laughs> How did we not get that into our OP curmudgeon? <laughs> That was really fun. Orthodox Presbyterian curmudgeons. <laughs> right? I, I think you know, that's, if that's who we are, that's okay. And we've got all kinds of different personality profiles in the room, but I think being yourself, being honest about who you are, but having a you know, desire to have that conversation will actually go a long ways. The last thing I'll say is maybe a little bit too graduated on it. Uh, but I also tend to think at times in terms of urgent categories. Like I just remember sitting beside this young lady coming back uh, from Iraq, wherever she was coming from, that God put that woman there. Now maybe I should, I should say this, I probably should, say it, should have said it later, later but here we are. So I, I lay down at night with kind of a woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Now I don't think everybody is called to bear that burden. I think that's a unique burden placed upon those that are called to the ministry. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. That being said, I think we, you have that, you know, we have the spirit, right? You have that sense that maybe the Lord put this person here and I just need to try and see where it goes. And, you know, a lot of people have come to Christ through some strange trails, right? I, I, another uh, hippie, came up and talked to me last night, converted guy here in the room and came to Christ back in the day through a kind of unusual trail and you know, who knows how the Lord might, might use you. So anyway, maybe one more question? Yes ma'am, up there in the box. Wow, that's a great question. We'll have to, i tell you what, when we do the next Q&A, we'll make that the very first question. That's too good of a question to give it 20 seconds when it deserves much more than that. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, so we're on break. Be, be on break. <laughs>